<laughs> oh, man. So one of the things that we should always remember, and I think is always encouraging to just remember that the worship songs that we sing are more than just words. Right? They're more than just words that we say, but they're actually proclamations that we're proclaiming back to God. Right? That's why some of the greatest worship songs are just scriptures. <laughs> just scriptures rewritten in melody. And those are some of the greatest worship songs because it's just taking God's word and proclaiming it back to him as true. And one of the things that we've been focusing on in this series is just that. Looking at who God says that we are, believing that we are who God has called us to be and said we are, um, and not allowing anything else to distract us or anything else to tell us something different. As we live in a culture, in a world, in a society where the public opinion matters most, where everybody is seeking validation from the public opinion, that we often get so lost in actually spending time seeking validation and the only voice that we should desire to affirm our identity, and that is God, who knitted us in our mother's womb, who knew us before we knew ourselves, who created us with purpose before he even created one pebble of stone in the foundations of the world. That is the God who gives us identity, and that is the God who we should be seeking after to know. Not just to know personally, but to know in a way that reveals to us then who we are. And so as we close out this series on identity, I think it was only six messages. It probably seemed like it was longer because we had a couple breaks in between where I was gone. Um, I almost didn't come today because I'm crippled. Um, <laughs> but I was like, hey, just, I could do this sitting down. I always wanted to do one of those like this, you know, and they just be sitting chilling. And they just got the book open. I always wanted to do one of those like miniature TED Talks. But, um, <laughs> but we've been in this series, and I've walked us through the whole idea that of El Rory, right? This Hebrew word that means God sees us, or the God of seeing. And in that, we started this series around understanding that when we're asking the question about who we are, that the question that we're asking should not be the question of who do you say that I am or how do you see me, but the question should be asked is who does God say that I am and how does God see me, right? That is the question that answers the question of identity, which is who am I, right? So yes, you answer your identity question with another question, and then the answer to that question is the one that begins to tell us who we are. Who does God say that I am? That is who I am, therefore. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, and we're going to end this series talking about public opinion versus God's revelation. And if you remember, we, the last message I preached, I demonstrated this idea of identity from the life of Saul. From the life of Saul. <laughs> um, and so today, though, I'm going to demonstrate, set my timer so y'all don't yell at me, so today, I'm going to demonstrate this whole question of identity from Jesus. And so we're going to look at Matthew 16, 13 through 17, where it says this. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, 
Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and share your word. This responsibility is nothing that is ever to be like but it is one that is to be done in full submission to the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, would you increase in me as I decrease before your people. Let the words that speak from my mouth or flow from my mouth be your words only, God. Let it penetrate and meet them, God, where you so desire to meet them as we close out this conversation of who are we. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you ever want to ask yourself the question of, just how jacked up the world is, and just how jacked up the world thinks, just look at what they did to Jesus. It ain't just you that the world be tripping on. It ain't just you that the world is confused about. They was tripping on Jesus, and they was confused about him as well. And sometimes I like to place myself in those spaces because a lot of times we like to think that everything that's happening is unique to us. Nah, this is just the world we live in, the world that the Bible says is temporarily under the reign and control of the ruler of the prince of this age, which we know to be Satan, right? And so he has this reign where he's running around. It doesn't mean that God isn't in control. It just means that he has been temporarily given this freedom, and he's doing things that he's doing, and he's, temporary, and he's trying to trick people and confuse people and, and win people to his army, right, so, so they can gear up for this big old, I've, I've talked about it before, they can gear up for this big old fight that's going to happen at the end days, and it's really a pointless fight. It's really, a, it's really pointless. Because, and, 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 and I feel so bad for people who get on the enemy's side before they read the book. Right? Because if they read the book, they'll realize that teaming with the enemy is not the smartest thing to do here. Because the book lets us know that after Satan gets all his little people together and all of the fallen angels that's rocking out with him and all of the people that they are able to turn and they all approach Jerusalem and they all get ready for the battle of Gog and Magog and, and it all about to go down. And the Bible says that Jesus with all of his might and power speaks a word and the battle's over. <laughs> Y'all that did all of these hundreds of thousands of years, assuming it's that long, let's just keep it to some regular stuff. Y'all done did five, six thousand minimum. I don't know where you sit with this, but minimum six thousand years. <laughs> Y'all done did a minimum six thousand years of preparing for a battle that Jesus gonna come on the scene and be like, hey, but that's, that's cute. <laughs> he gonna cut it. The Bible say he gonna come down with the host of the angels' armies. We gonna be with him. The angels gonna be with him. And we, and we ready. We like Peter. We ready. We like, yo, we're about to chop some ears off Jesus. Let's get it. I've been sorry at that demon for a minute anyway. I'm about to have at it. And you ready to go. And Jesus like, chill out. That's cute. And he just says, die. Battle over. Enter into the kingdom. Internal life. But people join his team. And it's like, why are you joining the team that the Bible has already told you how the battle, the battle ends? It's, that's the most foolish and most ridiculous, but the most deceiving thing ever. That's the power of deception. That you can know you're going to lose and still go into a full confidence that you might win. <laughs> I looked at you for a reason. Uh, basketball. Anyway, so too often, <laughs> too often, no. 
when we talk about this question of identity and we think we're isolated in this confusion and how the world doesn't see us and how the world is misunderstanding who we are and we want to, woe is me, and I know it sucks, we have to look and realize that it's not just you. The world don't see nobody. The public opinion is so flawed and so jacked up, and that's what we talked about in message five when I talked about that we're corrupted by sin and we don't have the ability to actually see people for who they are. And that's why we have to change who we desire to be seen by. And so instead of, being, instead of desiring to be seen by the culture, I desire to be seen by God. Right? Because God is one who can see us. We're not trying to, we're not trying to convince God of our worth, value, and significance. We already have it. Right? The culture don't have no standards. They shifty. Today what is valuable ain't valuable tomorrow. Tomorrow, today what is acceptable will get you canceled tomorrow. Right? Our value and our significance and our worth is not intrinsic when we're dealing with the culture, but with God, it is. And so over these past five messages, I have attempted to show us that while we desire to be affirmed in the world, the greatest affirmation that matters the most as it relates to the identity question is God. And if you missed some of these messages, go to YouTube, backslash Reach City Church Cleveland. There's five of them. Right. So if you missed or uh, whatever one you missed, go back and watch. If you haven't seen any of them, go back and watch them all because I built a framework to get to where I'm at today. Right. And so today I want to look and close this series out looking at Jesus and a passage of scripture where Jesus isolates himself from the crowd to be with just his disciples, to ask his disciples the identity question about himself. Who do people say that the son of man is? And listen, at first glance, you're looking at this and it's like, well, Jesus seems to be doing the thing you've been telling us not to do. Jesus is asking, how, who do other people say that I am? Jesus, no, no, no. PT said that is not the question that you should be answering. Jesus, you need to be looking to the Father and saying, Father, who am I? And so you're looking at this thing. It's like, well, if Jesus can ask the people, who is he? Why is it wrong for me to ask the people, who am I? Well, one, he already knew for sure. Notice he said, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? He told you who he was and asked if they see it as well. He wasn't confused about who he was. But at first glance, it kind of looks like Jesus is disagreeing with me, right? By asking his public opinion, instead of asking, who does God say that I am? However, what we're going to see is that who does God say that he is is exactly the question that he's trying to get the disciples to understand. He's asking this question as a setup to show them just how wrong the public is so that they will begin to see that in order to have the sight that God requires us to have when it pertains to anything really, but specifically in this series to identity, that that revelation needs to come from the Father. Right? Because what God says is the only answer that is correct. And so... Who does God say that I am is the only question that leads to the correct answer. Who does God say that I am is the only question that leads to the correct answer. Let me tell you guys something. It is weird sitting. Because y'all know I move around, so I want to get up. <laughs> I feel like I can restrict it and constraint to this thing here. So if I do this a lot, that's because I'm trying to get my jitters and movement out. So <laughs> who does God say that I am is the only question that leads to the correct answer. And to demonstrate this so clearly to his disciple, Jesus asks a public opinion about himself, but it's not because he's seeking validation like many of us when we ask, how does the public see us? Rather, Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is not to learn anything, 
but to teach that public opinion often sees wrongly. Public opinion often sees wrongly, even when it's right in front of them, right? They still can't get it. At best, they, they, they don't even agree with themselves. So they either can't get it at all or they just confused. Like, so they're like, well, Elijah, Jeremiah, John, one of them. They, he show, they don't know. At best, they're taking educated guesses. And at worst, they don't see nothing. And they just call them a blasphemer, a liar, and all those other things. But even Jesus is standing in front of them saying, who do you say that the son of man is? And the response from the public was not even at least that. Like, you would think at best they would be like, the son of man, for 500, Alex. Right? At best, I'm just going to repeat what you just said. They can't even come to the conclusion that who he's saying he is, at least to just repeat that. They like, Elijah, Jeremiah, John, somebody. But here's the funny thing. Jesus didn't come on the scene just using son of man in this passage. Jesus has been calling himself exclusively. There's only one other time in the New Testament that Son of Man is used by somebody other than Jesus, and that's Stephen when he was dying. So the only other time somebody saw Jesus as the Son of Man was somebody who was on his way to him. I'll explain why that matters in a minute. But the point is, Jesus had been using his terminology. He had been on the scene telling people that I am the Son of God. And they should have known what he was trying to say to them. They should have picked up on the communication that Jesus was trying to give them breadcrumbs into his identity. Because Son of Man was not just this made-up title. Matter of fact, Bible understanding, Jesus never spoke without a previous preference to something. Right? Jesus is coming with the full knowledge of the Hebrew text and Bible on his back. And he is using the Old Testament to show how he is the one that the Old Testament has been talking about since Genesis 3.15. And he, that's why when he's meeting with the disciples after he rises from the dead on Aramaic's road, and he looks to them and he said, and he, said he spent time with them showing them that the, old, that the law and the prophets all along have been doing nothing but speaking about him. Who is the rock in the wilderness that the Israelites hit? Jesus says, him. Right? Who is the Lamb of God that, 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 that God said he'll provide in Genesis with Abraham? Well, it wasn't the ram that was in the bush because he said, I'll provide a lamb. The lamb that God provided was the Lamb of God that John proclaims, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is walking with the disciples and he's saying everything that the Bible has ever said about anything you've ever been confused about, it was me. So he comes with the full understanding of the Hebrew Bible behind him, and the audience should have understood when he used titles like the Son of Man, because it reveals who he is. But they couldn't see. So they replied, what? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, I don't know, one of them prophets. They all over the place, never really having any level of confidence in the man that's right in front of them. And I'm going to argue that Many of us deal with that. We talk to people and one person say, oh, they this, and the next person say, oh, they that. They don't know. They confuse themselves. They just hoping they hit the jackpot on one. But here's the point. Public opinion has even confused the public. <laughs> public opinion has even confused the public. 
And I want you to notice this because it's important to pay attention that the disciples gave no hostile view of Jesus. You see that? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, they gave no hostile view of who Jesus is. But there were plenty of hostile views of who Jesus was. Right? We, we, we know that in Matthew uh, 10, 23 through 25, they called Jesus what? Beelzebub or the ruler of demons. Right? We know that the, 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 uh, the teachers of the law and the scribes, they would call him a blasphemer. We know that there were other names that people saw Jesus as outside of Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. And I want you guys to pay attention to why the disciples chose not to include any of the hostile names towards Jesus given by those who didn't like Jesus. Two reasons. Firstly, because what your haters think of you should not be included in your identity question. Why do I care what somebody that I know don't like me cares and thinks about me? I'm not going to go to the person that I know don't like me and ask them, tell me something about myself. They don't like me. They're going to say nothing positive. And so the disciples is like, Jesus is like, who do they say that the son of man is? He said, well, we're excluding them. Other people? Elijah, Jeremiah, we're not talking about the Pharisees. We're not talking about the teachers. They don't matter in this conversation because they already got, they already got sin blinding them. Now they got hate blinding them. Now they got jealousy blinding them. Now they got envy blinding them. Now they got you doing better than them in life blinding them. So why do I want them to ever be able to speak anything into my life? They don't matter. Say it with me. They don't matter. Of course they'll try to discredit your genius, your pretty, your drive, your character, your whatever. They don't like you. You're a threat to them. They know the power of self-esteem. They know that they can get you to doubt yourself. They can paralyze you from becoming who you should be. And they don't want you to be who you should be. You better believe they're scared of you. You better believe the world out there don't want us as believers to figure out who we are and the power that we have as believers. The enemy is banking on us, never figuring out just who we are in Christ. If he can keep us thinking we're just worldly, just flesh, he's doing a good job. And he's like, I, I got free reign. For, but the moment we figure out who we are, so of course he don't like you. So of course he's going to whisper in your ear, you're not good enough. And then he's going to send his little minions to come whispering in your ear too, like your boss or your ex-best friend or some social media influencer. Remember, Jesus told Peter that to get behind me, Satan, because the enemy has the ability to influence and speak through other people. And so the enemy is using his little wicked minions to try to discourage you from knowing who you are so he can paralyze you from walking into the person that God created you to be because he is afraid of you ever figuring it out. So the disciples like, we're not even going to talk about that, Jesus. Just in case it would matter to you, Jesus, we're not even going to put that in your ear. We don't even want you to think less of yourself. Secondly, the disciples excluded the haters' opinion to show us that even well-intended people can still misspeak about your identity. Pay attention. These people that they're talking about right now didn't say anything wrong about Jesus on the surface. They didn't have hostility. The ones who had hostility, he's Beelzebub. He's, a, he's hostile. I mean, he's a blasphemer. These people, they're just looking with their eyes, and they're concluding that he is somebody. And we'll talk about why what they're saying was not hostile on the surface. <coughs> somebody hit me real quick. Um, but the reason that they don't include the haters as well is to show you that even those individuals who have nothing against you, 
can still misspeak about your identity. They still can get it wrong. And just because people ain't trying to discredit you don't mean they can still see you. And I'll explain that more later, but we have to learn to understand this. That because, thank you, because some of us, we're so good at ignoring the haters, but we get stuck when it comes to ignoring well-intended friends and loved ones. It's like, yeah, I can ignore that person, but can you ignore your mom? Can you ignore your grandma? Sorry, ma. Sorry, grandma. Can you ignore <laughs> your wife, your husband, your best friend? What about when they start well-intended with well-intended purpose saying things to you that really not who you are? And you don't even know. Well, you should know it's not who you are because you should have been consulting God. But let's say you hadn't consulted God yet. So that means they're speaking something seems good, seems right. And you start believing it. But you don't even know it because you ain't consulted God. And so they meant well, but they still was wrong. Why were they wrong? Because they ain't consulted God. Okay, listen, I'll explain that in a minute. And many times, those are the people who do the most damage to our identity. Because they're not out to get us. And so we give them the benefit of the doubt. Right? If you look at the response of the average person, right? These titles hold powerful, they're powerful to our identity. And so, and so, and so they say, John the Baptist. And listen, he was a great prophet. According to Jesus in Matthew 11, he says, there is no one greater born than John the Baptist. So they weren't knocking Jesus. They actually was like, hey, man, you, you John the Baptist. That's like a, you know what I'm saying, like comparing my basketball game to somebody like, yeah, you MJ. Like, yeah. Yep. Facts. No? Not MJ too much? All right, let's go. Uh, Dane? All right, Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> I injured myself playing basketball, by the way. <laughs> but that's not bad. I got to hurry. We'll never finish. Elijah, <laughs> right? They say Elijah, well, well, he was a great prophet who didn't even experience death. He was just caught on up to Jesus, right? And he's the, he's the one that God says in Malachi 4, 5, I'm going to send you another prophet like Elijah before that great day. And so by them saying Elijah, they're acknowledging greatness on him. They're acknowledging, acknowledging that he's this prophetic figure. And their ministries were the same. Why? Because Jesus was trying to turn people back to the Lord, and they rejected and persecuted him. Then they say Jeremiah. And we don't really know why they said Jeremiah. I'll just be honest. We don't know. We don't, we don't have anything in our Bible <laughs> that tells us anything about Jeremiah coming back. We know he was special. However, there is this Jewish understanding in a non-canonical book, Second Ezra, that says this, I will send you help, my servant Isaiah and Jeremiah, according to their counsel, I've consecrated and prepared for you 12 trees loaded with various fruits, right? And so there is, and so why it's not canonical, the reason that I'm using, I'm referencing in that is because it's showing you that in Jewish culture, they did see Jeremiah as this returning figure, this important figure in their day. And so he's talking to a Jewish audience, and so they could be mentioning Jeremiah from this place of understanding. And then they also say, and if we don't really know, just one of the prophets. None of those are knocks. None of those are bad things. None of those seem like they're trying to minimize his being. Unless that's not who he is. Right? If that's not who he is, then all of that is minimizing who he actually is. And so they name these names. And while it may seem like they're trying to honor him, it still minimizes and misses the true identity of who he is. Because no matter how prestigious a title society may give him, 
It's not who he is. And I need us to realize that. Because we seek prestige. What's the, how you say it the right way? Prestige. It was another word. We seek prestige. We seek uh, 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 greater levels of influence and socioeconomic positioning. We seek all of that. So, so if somebody wants to give us something or proclaim us to be something that we deem culturally as high, we just adopt it. But if that's not you, don't accept it. Just because it's a high honor in society, if it's not who God created you to be, it's lower than you. If God didn't call you to be a basketball player, becoming a basketball player is lower than whoever he calls you to be. Because in your purpose is where you find full fulfillment. In your purpose is when that void that leads people running to drugs, alcohol, sex, money, and all of that gets filled. And purpose and knowing who you are. Not in, accept, in accepting something that is good in the culture. All right, let's go. We got to hurry. So I want to be clear. Public opinion should not be allowed to determine or shape our identity. All right, y'all got that? And so this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. This lesson that the majority can be wrong. Say it with me. The majority can be wrong. It doesn't matter if everybody says you'll be nothing. It doesn't matter if everybody misunderstands your purpose. It doesn't matter, Huff, if everybody says there's no value in this community. If people say your skin color, your economic status, your relational status makes you less important. I'm telling you everybody is wrong. Because the majority don't mean they're right. And just because the crowds agree don't mean that the premise is true. They all following wrong understanding. They all jumping in line, the blind leading the blind. So of course their conclusion is false. But public opinion affects the confidence we have in who we are when it shouldn't. It's raining us because we're putting too much stock in how we're seen instead of putting that effort into who we actually are. And so we have these masks that we wear, masks on our faces, our bodies, our hearts, our emotions, our character, our relationships, our careers, because we care about how they see us. Instead of choosing based on how we feel, how we see ourselves, what we like, who we like, what we're called to, we say, I wonder how I'll look with this person. Not as this person for me, but will we look like a power couple? You ain't going to be powerful nothing. You're going to have really great Instagram pictures. You ain't accomplishing nothing, but you look like a powerful couple. Let me get this job because I'm going to look like I got it all together. And meanwhile, at home, you toe up, hating everything you do. But you pick and based upon how people will see you instead of saying, God, who am I and what do I like and what are you calling me to? And letting that be the thing that you choose to chase after, be with, follow after, pursue. Public opinion is reigning us instead of God's revelation. And, and, and here's why we shouldn't be concerned with public opinion. I'll give two reasons. Both extend beyond this subject of identity. The first is caring about public opinion leads to compromise. Caring about public opinion leads to compromise. Remember Saul? Remember why he lost his kingdom? Because he disobeyed God? Remember why he disobeyed God? 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said, Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's commands in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Remember why Aaron made that calf? Knowing it wasn't God. He let the people. Aaron had been to the mountaintop. <laughs> and he let people tell him to make something out of gold and call it God. You know this ain't God. But he ain't feel like dealing with the people. And so we compromise to please the people. Public opinion always leads to compromise. 
<laughs> you want a better example? Pilate. Why did he free Barabbas? It wasn't because he was innocent. It wasn't because Jesus was guilty. He literally said when they said, no, free Barabbas, he said, why? Jesus ain't did nothing. But then he said he ain't feel like dealing with the crowd. So he said, listen, I'm just going to wash my hands. Do what you want. Coward. Caring more about public opinion. And so he compromised truth. And whenever we're concerned about what others think, we will compromise God's word in order to be accepted. Until we get to a place where I don't care how you think about me, I only care about how God thinks about me. Now I'm going to follow what God said, not what you said, and if you leave me, bye-bye. If I lose followers, bye-bye. If I don't get the job, bye-bye. And I know that that touches my money, I mess my bag up. Jesus is the bag. That's another t-shirt. Let's get it. <laughs> He's an endless bag. You just keep reaching in there, and it's like, where is this? Ain't nothing even. You just keep pulling this out. But we worried about losing something when Jesus is it all. Comfort. Who's a greater comfort? I know we got great friends. Tamika's an amazing encourager. But she ain't better than when Jesus encouraged me. My wife is a great comforter. I like, she knows it. I, I take up her arm and make it numb every night. <laughs> but, listen, last night she was laying on my arm. About five minutes later, I said, mm-hmm, girl, this hurt. <laughs> I was like, this what it feel like? I'm sorry. <laughs> and this goes beyond spiritual. People compromise their values to fit in all the time, but caring about public opinion leads to compromise. Here's why. Secondly, because public opinion is often contrary to God. The reason following public opinion leads to compromise is because public opinion is often contrary to God. Remember Haggai 1, 2 verse 4? The people said that it's not time to build the house of the Lord. Well, first off, he told you 13-something years ago to build the house of the Lord. So how are you going to say that it's not time when he told you it's been time? Well, it says, and so Jesus says by, by the prophet Haggai, it, it, it's time for you yourselves to live in your panel houses while my house lies in ruins. In other words, God told him to do something. The crowd said it wasn't time, and it went against what God had actually told him to do. And so they've been sitting around here with this half-built temple for all of this time. My wife preached that, if y'all remember. This half-built temple for all of this time, talking about it's not time. God said it's time. So who are you going to listen to? Well, why did they listen to the public? Because it was time for them to live in their panel, because it was comfortable. And public opinion is often based on comfort. And we all know that a following God's revelation typically goes against our comfort. The concept of forgiveness, against our comfort. The concept of loving our enemy, against our comfort. The concept of ethics, against our comfort. Pay attention. It's against our comfort. And so, of course, we don't want to deal with God's revelation. Because it takes me and places me in a place that is uncomfortable. Where's comfortable for me? What I want to do. When God's word starts pulling me out of what I want to do, I get uncomfortable. And so I'd rather now go find me somebody that will affirm me instead of challenge me. Okay, listen, let's keep going. That's another message. The crowd is often not where God is. Did you hear that? The crowd is often not where God is. Remember Matthew 7, 13 and 14? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it? The crowd is not where God is. 
Yet still knowing that God has revealed the dangers of the crowd, so many people are more concerned with the crowd than the validation of the few. The crowd has 10 million followers, so they get validation, even though they don't know God. But they're speaking for God. But they're popular, and everybody like them. The way that leads to destruction is broad. God's not in the crowds. Now, let me be very clear on something. I'm not saying that God is not in big things. I'm not saying he's only in small things. What I am saying, though, is whenever you have big things, you have more people to deal with. And whenever you have more people to deal with, there's a greater temptation to compromise the word of God to keep those people. And so, listen, I'm not saying don't go for big things. But I'm just saying, listen, if you can't obey God with your two friends, you probably shouldn't ask them to give you a thousand. You're not graced to deal with the crowds. (laughs) Everybody want to be big. They want a bigger platform. You suck with the platform you got now. So if you can't stand for God with the five people at your job, what you going to do if he give you 20,000 people and they start telling you to do something different? Everybody not graced to deal with the crowds. I'm going to tell you why. You need tough skin to tell the crowds no. I tell people no. Bring the crowds. No, (laughs) no, no. no. I don't care. No. But no, no. But God, no. But Instagram said, I don't care. I'm just playing. (laughs) Y'all know I'm going to get on this Instagram in a minute. Don't worry. China's coming up. Question. If public opinion is so wrong, Why do we let it control how we view ourselves? Right? If God is warning us about how wrong the public is in life, why do we allow it to shape our identity? Right? They have a record of being wrong, and God is showing us this throughout Scripture, and he's warning us. But now notice something else. Although Jesus asked the public's opinion, he was more concerned with the few. Matthew 16, 15, he says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And this you is plural, even though Peter's the one speaking, the you is plural. Peter was often the spokesman. So he's talking to the disciples, and Peter is responding for the disciples. But the point is that Jesus shifts to ask the few who they say he is. But this is something that's so important to remember. God has a history of working through a remnant over the crowds. Whenever the crowds are going the wrong way, God works through a few. Remember 1 Kings 19, 18? He says, but I'll send 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. And 7,000 may not seem like a small crowd, but in comparison to all of Israel, that's a small few. Right? Whenever the crowds are going the wrong way, God always operates with a few. And so the crowds are not seeing who he is. And so he turns to the few. He turns to the 12. Remember, he isolated Matthew 13 doesn't really demonstrate that he isolated himself, but if you read the same account in Mark 8, verse 27, you'll see that it says that Jesus left with his disciples. So he isolates himself from the crowd to deal with the few. All right. The few are those who chose God's revelation or word over the crowds, right? Now pay attention to this. He turns to them. He rejects what the public is saying. He turns to the few. And what does Peter say? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The few had a different opinion about the identity of Jesus. The crowd had its opinion, but the few had a different opinion. The few said the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting on to come and restore the throne of David, to reign over all of the kingdoms, the son of the living God, God in the flesh. Don't worry, we're getting there. 
But the point is there is a drastic difference in how the disciples see Jesus and how the public did. And I think this is critical because we can say, well, that's because proximity breeds understanding. We can say because they walked with Jesus, they began to understand Jesus. But let me explain something to you. Jesus did nothing with them that he didn't do to the pub for the public. Remember Matthew 11, 2 and 5, right, where, where John the Baptist is in jail and he sends his people and he says, ask him, is he the one? Is he the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? That's all it means. Christ, the Messiah, anointed one. That's all it means, right? Um, um, is he or should I be looking for another? And Jesus comes on the scene and he says this. He said, tell John that the blind receive their sight, the, uh, 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 the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. He says, listen, Jesus is saying, I've been doing everything in public so that the public would be able to identify and recognize who I am. And so the disciples did not see who Jesus was because of proximity. Okay, then how did they see who he was? Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Peter answered correctly, not by human wisdom and sight, but by the revelation of God and by revelation alone. It doesn't matter how close a person is to you. If they are not getting their sight from God, it is faulty vision. They were his disciples. But it wasn't because they were close to him that they saw him. Because Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my father, who is the revelation of God, has allowed you to see who I am. And this is why I've been stressing over five messages, that it is not flesh and blood that you need to be dependent on to see you. But it is God who reveals who you are. It is the revelation of who God says you are that is more important than what flesh and blood. Flesh and blood said Elijah. Flesh and blood said Jeremiah. Flesh and blood said John the Baptist. Flesh and blood said one of them. But the revelation of God said you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't rebuke that. He goes on to saying, upon this rock I'll build my church. Not you, Peter. That confession. It <laughs> doesn't matter if they know you or don't know you. Right? Because let's clear that up too. They don't have to know you to see you. Because we are like, yeah, yeah, you don't know nothing about I don't have to necessarily know everything about you to see you. What I need more than anything is God to speak and show me. You don't know you. So, so. <laughs> So you don't even know that who I'm telling you you are is really who you are because you ain't even consult God. You're just so busy telling me it ain't who you are because the public said it ain't who you are. When you get a chance, read Jeremiah 24 and 26, where Jeremiah come as the mouthpiece of God, telling the people in Jeremiah what's about to happen to the temple. And then the people that's supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, they be like, they arrested him. How dare you speak as if you're God and tell us this? We're Israel. This is the temple. And God's like, I did talk to them. I ain't talking to you. He right, you wrong. Okay. Y'all get that in the car. What allows a person to see how God sees is revelation, not information. And this is what I've been saying forever. Only God can reveal our true identity and purpose. And this is the big difference between how Peter sees Jesus and how the public sees him. This whole question is a setup to teach the disciples and us to lean not on who others say we are and how others see us, but on what God reveals. It takes God's sight. Why? Because we're corrupted, affected by sin. We're blind. <coughs> Man, this is not like anything like that, y'all. Just, it's hot. And I yell. 
hush. And so what I've been saying for five weeks, it equally prevents us from seeing even how God created us. And since this is true, then trying to answer the identity question according to public opinion will cause us to have an identity question. Peter sees Jesus for who he is because he saw according to revelation and not flesh. And Jesus used himself to teach that early on. He wanted it to be clear that revelation is better than sight. And this matters especially when it comes to Christ, because so many people will go on to only be able to see him according to flesh and blood and even persecute those who stand on the revealed identity of Christ over the public identity of him. But Christ wanted us from who belong to him to come to see that revelation is greater than public opinion. And revelation may leave you being the few, but the narrow is the ones who find the way. But narrow, I'm sorry, is the way of the few. Those who allow revelation to lead them and not the crowds are the one who finds the truth. This is in life and in identity. We come to discover and accept who we are when we learn to value who God says we are over who the world says we should be and even who we want to be. Now, be free. But there's no way that I can leave you all today without talking about who Jesus is according to the revelation of God. Not Instagram, not Google, not Facebook, not Wikipedia, or any other inadequate form to tell us who Jesus is. And y'all had to know I was going here. I've been teasing at this since the little popular person made her post. But we got to address some things. And we need to clarify some things. And while I can't give you the whole Son of Man breakdown because I was going to when we was at like page 50, so I was like, yeah, maybe I should just do a video. Um, <laughs> I got to hit this, though. Because many people see Jesus say that he is the son of man. Reset. Set it for this. First off, calm down. I set it very low, and I hit my target. I had two minutes left. All right. <laughs> Check this out. There are a lot of people who will look at this title and Jesus only said he's the son of man. Quit saying he's God. Jesus only said he's the son of God. And, and here's the reality. That is what Jesus always said about himself. I'm not going to argue that with you. Right? But he's more than a great prophet. And the reason it was not acceptable for, for the public to say that he was just a great prophet is because Jesus is more than a great prophet. He is the Messiah and he is God. Now, there's a lot of debate and a lot of confusion around this subject. However, let me be very clear. Anyone who denies the triune nature of God is not leaning on revelation, but human understanding. And that is what Jesus is explaining in this very text, that flesh and blood cannot comprehend who Jesus is. It takes revelation. By the way, if you don't get direct revelation, who knows what the other revelation is? Bible. Special revelation is the Bible where God has chosen on the pages of Scripture to reveal things about himself otherwise would not have been known. So anybody trying to help you comprehend who Jesus is and they don't talk about, I, I got my iPad, so imagine this is, they don't talk about this book. <laughs> I need to keep my book up here. Reject them. The flesh can't, now here, here's something me and my wife was talking about. And yep, I'm about to break this down. Six minutes. Me and my wife was talking about this in a bit. The flesh can apprehend even what it can't comprehend. What? 
Oh. We was just, we were studying. <laughs> y'all, get your heads out the gutter. I, I put it on Instagram. Y'all saw it. Y'all saw it. All right. Listen. Anyway, we were talking. And what we said, what I said to my wife was, the flesh can apprehend even if it can't apprehend. I mean, even if it can't comprehend. Now, pay attention to what I'm saying. We have the ability to apprehend even those things that we can't fully comprehend. What's the difference? I, I don't have to be able to fully comprehend what God is doing to perceive that he's actually doing something, though. Okay? That's the difference. And we see it in this conversation of suffering. Right? How does Paul get to this place in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing in us absolute, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. How can we get to this place where we can uh, uh, repeat what Hebrews says that we are made perfect, that, that we are being, uh, that suffering is perfecting us, that we're being made, our perfection is being done through suffering. Right? Now we can see that. Now we don't comprehend it. Because in our head, God, you can do it any other way you can. I don't understand, God, why you're doing things the way you're doing. But I can apprehend that he is making me perfect through it. I don't have to understand everything that I apprehend of God. And here's the reason why. Because it's God. <laughs> right? We're talking about the nature of God here. And you think you're supposed to be able to just write it on a napkin and get it? You need Revelation to see the infinite, always existing, triune, one God. What is, we can't even gather the fact that something never had a beginning. But you want to understand that person on your own. And then if somebody says you need the Bible, you be like, nah, you're just doing gymnastics and theological flips. But it's God who says in Isaiah 55, 8, and nine, that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not, if my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, how can you use your thoughts and your ways to comprehend me? This is basic logic. We don't even got to go into any type of language. We don't got to go into church history. We ain't got to open up all of the commentary. We can just read what God said about himself and realize I can't understand him. And I ain't been understanding him from the beginning. I don't understand why you love me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for me. That makes zero sense to me. But I accept it. I apprehend it. I may not comprehend how uh, Jesus can die for all of the world, but I apprehend it. Why? Because I confess faith in him and I show pray. Forgive me for my sins by the blood of Jesus. Come on, y'all. Don't get funky and confused and all weird because these people that don't know nothing got y'all all twisted in your mind. Y'all do this all the time when it comes to God. But the moment somebody that don't have no clue or nothing other than the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that ain't even theology, we over here questioning, is Jesus really God? That is a child that needs to read. And tell her I said it. Jesus. Never said he was God. Okay, bet. Let's deal with it. Jesus has been trying to reveal who he is from the beginning by using the title Son of Man. These are breadcrumbs. Let me explain it to you. The Son of Man comes from the Old Testament and is most frequently used in the book of Ezekiel. It is not the most, it is not the most significant place that it's used. It's the most significant place is Daniel 7. But the most frequent place is the book of Ezekiel. Over 93 times Ezekiel uses this title, Son of Man. Okay, here's a gotcha moment for them. And when he uses it, yes, he is referring to humanity. In Ezekiel, when he uses the word son of man, he is literally referring to a prophet of God that is human. And so 
people would read that and they'll be like, see, gotcha. Son of man just means prophet. Man, used by God. Prophet. See, the Christian church got y'all out here lying because in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, they decided they wanted to create this. You ain't even, you don't know nothing about the Council of Nicaea. Quit talking about it. Trinity was not the thing of discussion at the Council of Nicaea. It was not. Go read a book. Tell these people to call me. I'm sorry, I'm getting hot. Okay, let's go. So tired of these people. They got our people confused. And I'm ripping. I'm like, why, why are you confused by this person? They've been, a, they've been reading the Bible for three weeks and they're going to tell you. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus used the title, and the people who weren't antagonists of him understood what it meant. So let me explain what it means. When you read the Bible, I, I want to stand up so bad right now. When you read the Bible, when you read, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> When you read the Bible, there is a thing called revelation. There are things that are written that its full fulfillment does not, is not given until later. That's why Paul talks about a mystery that is going to happen. But I look at the Bible and I say it's never been a mystery to me. God been saying from the beginning of the time that he would save Israel and the nations. However, in that present moment when they were scribing those things, they did not have everything that we had. And so it was a mystery to them what God was going to do. They don't have the entire Bible that we have. And so when you get caught up in just one place and you don't let the rest of the Bible speak for it, then you get stuck in one place that God is no longer even dealing with there. And so if I want to understand how the Son of Man speaks more to just humanity, but also speaks to the authority of Jesus as God, then I got to let Jesus tell me it. And he tells us to us. In Luke chapter 5, verse 20 through verse 24, where Jesus did what? He heals the paralyzed man. And they called him a blasphemer. And they called him a blasphemer because he didn't say, get up and take your mat and walk, but he said, your sons are forgiven. And so Jesus says this, seeing their faith, give me some more time. Seeing their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but who? All right, now somebody would read that and tell you, oh, they just only thought that God could. But how, he, God said, <laughs> okay, let's just stop thinking for God and let God tell us what he means. Okay, now he says this. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Notice what Jesus says. He heals the man. But instead of telling him to get up and walk, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, a lot of people try to connect that with sickness. See, forgiving sins, then you won't be sick. That's not what Jesus is dealing with here. They don't know what they're talking about either. Instead, what Jesus is trying to reveal is the difference between the title Son of Man in the Old Testament and what it means when he says the Son of Man. Jesus is like, I've been saying I'm the Son of Man, but I want to be very clear. Don't get it confused when I say the Son of Man. I ain't talking about Ezekiel and them. I ain't talking about John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or none of them other prophets. And I'm going to prove it to you because here's the thing. He said, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, everybody do an exercise with me. Say your sins are forgiven. All right. Now say get up and walk. All right, let's be honest here. Was either one of those actually hard to say? <laughs> no, because Jesus is not dealing with what is easier to say but what is easier to do. Okay, let me point it out. I can tell you your sins are forgiven 
and be like, I have the authority as God because your sins are forgiven. Prove it. Well, it's hard for me to prove that your sins are forgiven. You got to die and not go to hell. Right? But it's easy for me to show you that I have authority to heal if I tell you to what? Because in order for a paralyzed person to walk, he has to be what? But in order for me to tell you your sins are forgiven, it's either going to be done, but I can't prove it. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, it's easier for me. Yes, it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven. Right? But it's not easy for me to prove that. And the reason that I don't care about trying to prove it, and the reason I didn't say get up and take your walk, is because I'm not concerned with you thinking I can heal people. The prophets heal people. The prophets did miracles. That would make me them. So I'm going to say something, even though it's hard for me to prove, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say, instead of get up and take your mat and walk, I'm going to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, he tells them, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. By the way, the same thing that you understand, oh, Jewish people, that only God can do. And so Jesus says, I'm not concerned with this healing situation right here. Yes, it's easy for me to say your sins are forgiven. It's harder for me to prove it, but I need to say it so that you can hear me say it so that you would know that I am proclaiming an authority that none of these other sons of men had because none of these other sons of men proclaimed to do what? Be able to forgive sins. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he uses a language because it has nothing to do with him wanting to heal him. I mean, he's going to heal him, but his language. He could have just said, hey, man, you heal, get up and walk. And everybody would have been like, oh, great prophet. But Jesus is like, nah, I'll just say your sins are forgiven. Same thing for me. And all the people are like, what is wrong with this man? He's a blasphemer. But Jesus is connecting the title son of man to himself to be something that is drastically different from how they understood the title in the Old Testament. And if that doesn't make enough sense to you, that's okay. Apprehend, don't have to comprehend. But let me give you another example. <clears throat> Do I want to say this? Yeah, okay, I'll say this. Jesus uses the title Son of Man rightfully because he is human. But he also wants to extend it to realize that he's the incarnate God. Right? In fact, when, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, that is actually what Peter is understanding. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Peter is connecting the Messiah to what? To Christ, who is who? Well, according to the text, God. What do I mean by that? Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of the Lord through the prophet. What prophet? The prophet Isaiah. Where at? In chapter 7 uh, and 9. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated what? God is with us. Okay? Now, if you read Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1, all the way until they get to that point, they are tracing the divinic line all the way through David, through all of the prophets, to do what? To show you that he has claims to the royal throne as Messiah. If you want to get really interesting, when you go over to Luke, Luke pulls his genealogy through his mother. Matthew's pulling the genealogy through Joseph, his adopted father, legal father by Jewish law. Luke pulls it through his mother. 
And the beauty of the two genealogies, when you put them together, is one shows that he has the rightful claim as Joseph's lineage. But just in case you want to try to say, but hold on, Joseph ain't his father, so he really can't fulfill the prophecy. Then he says, hold on, but let me show you how even through his mother, he still has the rightful claim to the throne of David. But the whole point of the genealogy is to show you that he can be the Messiah. That's the whole point of it. And so then Matthew ends and says, hey, and when he's born, they'll call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, that is literally the description of who the Messiah will be. And then if you go over, I mean, in Isaiah chapter 7, then if you go over to Daniel chapter 7 on your own, we're running out of time. Then when you go over to Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that the very description that Isaiah uses for who the Messiah will be is the same description that Daniel uses to say who the Son of Man is. Son of Man, Messiah, same title, same purpose, same meaning. But then if you really want to get really deep in this stuff on your own, then I want you to head over to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. And I want you to look at the description that is given for the Son of Man. Then I want you to travel back over to Daniel chapter 7, to the description that is given to the Ancient of Days. In Daniel chapter 7, two people, Son of Man, Ancient of Days. We know that to be the Father and the Son, right? Then I want you to head over to Revelation chapter 1, and I want you to look at the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I want you to look at the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I want you to look at the description of the Son of Man in Ezekiel chapter 127. I want you to look at the description of the Father, the Ancient of Days, in Daniel chapter 7. Then I want you to put them all together, and I want you to tell me that you don't see one person. One person being described. All of them have the exact same description. Why? Because they're the same person. Being. I'm sorry. They're the same being. All right. Let me get y'all out of here. Let me make. Jesus said it this way. John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14. And the word became what? And dwelt upon us. Right? And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. All right? But Peter only says, son of God. Great. Love it. John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Onslaught of scriptures and we done. Jesus responded to them. My father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying to move to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is what they didn't like when he said the son of God. Listen, you can you can Western explain that away. You know how they say mansplain. You can Western explain that away. Or you can let the people of that day tell you what Jesus meant when he said certain things. They said, hold on, bro, you trying to call yourself equal with God. And if you go over to John chapter 17, and if you go over to Isaiah chapter 42, Jesus says, there is no one equal with me. I share my glory with none other. So you can't claim essence with me unless you claim to be me because I give it to none other. Not I give it to my son. Not I can give it to who I want. He says, I give it to none other. Then who? Myself. Okay. I hit y'all with a lot, I know. I'm going to hit you with one more thing, and then I'm gone. Because it's my favorite illustration. Look at all this stuff on your own. Just promise me. Ezekiel chapter 1. Read the whole chapter. Don't just stop it. Just read the whole chapter. So nobody be like, oh, just read the whole chapter. Then read the whole chapter, Daniel 7. Then read Daniel chapter 9 as well. Include that. Just go 7 through 9. Then I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1. Right? Then I want you to put all that stuff together. And then I want you to actually go to Acts chapter 2. And when you go to Acts chapter 2, I want you to tell me, how did the Holy Spirit come? And when you see how the Holy Spirit comes, then I want you to tell me, how God is depicted in the entire Bible. Father, Son, and Spirit. All with fire. That's the description. That's the description. 
from waist up, fire. From waist down, fire. The throne room with wheels of fire like chariots of fire. Jesus is seen rushing wind as his voice with eyes like fire and in the bottom half of him burnished like bronze that went through the fire. Then the Holy Spirit comes as fire and you must be baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is water and... Okay, listen, this is, this is, this is basic. They like, no, it's not. <laughs> Genesis 19, last thing, I'm gone. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zor. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. And I love this verse, because here's what it says in Hebrew. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached shore. Then out of the sky, the Lord Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord Yahweh. Okay, y'all remember this story? God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's chopping it up in chapter 18, dealing with Abraham. Three angels approach. Abraham calls them all Lord, but not Yahweh, Adonai, but he still calls them all Lord. They all respond to him. Then the, then the two leave to go to Sodom. One stays back, and God begins to reveal. And he asks, he questions, should I reveal to him what I'm going to do? And, 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 and the angel, God, Yahweh, begins to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do. The other two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah was already going to be destroyed before anybody wants to make any assumptions about, oh, it was because they tried to sleep with the angels. They were going there to destroy them anyway. Remember, Abraham was like, yeah, find me one. <laughs> God was like, yeah, find him. I want one. Yeah, if you find one, I won't destroy him. They were already wicked. They were wicked for oppression. They were wicked for injustice. He's got to read Leviticus to tell you exactly what was wrong with him, right? Okay, so the two angels go there, and they see it jacked up, and the men try to come sleep with him. So he's like, yo, get out of here a lot. You and your wife go. It's time. We're about to, we about to do a thing down here. And so then the Bible makes this cl very clever statement that Yahweh, that's literally the Hebrew there, that Yahweh on earth rains down fire from Yahweh in heaven. How many Yahwehs is it? Okay. Who is Yahweh? The God. The only God. The one that Deuteronomy 6.4 said, Oh, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh. Not Elohim. Not little Elohim. Those are generic forms for any spiritual being that exists. But Yahweh, the most high Elohim. One. And the Bible says that Yahweh rains down fire and sulfur from Yahweh in heaven. How is that possible? Unless Yahweh... Is one being, but more than one person. Father, Son, Spirit, and I'll let y'all sit with that a little bit longer. But here's the thing I want you to remember. You don't have to comprehend everything in order to apprehend it. We just need to believe it by revelation. And this is exactly how Peter saw. By revelation and not by human understanding or the flesh. And in the same way, we must allow God to reveal who we are and be confident in that regardless of public opinion. The public will always have something to say, and until we learn to ground ourselves in the confidence of who God says we are, then others' opinions of us will toss us to and fro. And this is why I told y'all three weeks ago, learn to appreciate who you are before you yearn for the appreciation of others, right? Those who focus on public opinion or the flesh will never be able to see the person they truly are. We can't seek identity from those who can't see, so we need it from God whose revelation is sure. Amen? Amen. So that's how we end this identity series. Whether you got to go home and do a lot of research, that's fine. Just do the research from, like, the Bible, not Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, but I wanted to end it to show you how Jesus is trying to help us realize that the public will always get it wrong, and so we must be seeking his revelation. When it comes to who we are, 
who God created you to be, crafted you to be, molded you to be, knitted you together in your mother's womb to be. It's, it's, it's who he says you are. And if we're going to go forward to learn to appreciate us, if we're going to go forward to learn to break out of this identity crisis where we're allowing the culture to throw us back and forth, one week we got to be this, the next week we got to be this, your hair got to be just right here, your clothes got to be just right here, oh, it changed. It used to be baggy clothes, now it's tight clothes. I don't even know where I'm supposed to sit no more. So I just wear like middle ground clothes. <laughs> not too tight, not too baggy. Let my ankles show though a little bit. That's hot though, I like it. I like it. <laughs> but the point is, the culture is always shifting. And if you don't know who you are, you start playing the game of trying to keep up with them. And you will always be confused, never knowing who you actually are. Amen? 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 Amen. I hope y'all, I'm going to ask y'all next week, who you? <laughs>